everyone, and welcome to Minute 77 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we take a wild trip to the 1987 John Hughes comedy, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Sully of the Bull Durham Minute, the Lockdown MLD podcast, a whole bunch of other things. I mean, you, a comedian, writer, producer, I don't know, all, all these different things. Special welcome back to... Special education teacher, too. That's- okay, there you go. Special ed teacher. So welcome back to the show, Sully. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Paul Francis Sullivan is my full name, but I go by Sully just because that's what everyone calls me. Now, I know they had a gigantic shooting script for Planes, Trains, and Army. Yeah, which they, did they actually, did they shoot a three-hour version Yeah, we discussed it. it. We, we, we mentioned this yesterday. Well, I, they, I, the I didn't first know if they actually cut, made the cut, first cut The first cut that John Hughes made of this movie was three hours and 45 minutes. Release that cut. Yeah, apparently, see it. apparently it's gone. There's no way of of finding it. So it's probably tucked away in somebody's, you know, cupboard somewhere. And and I would love maybe one day. So would I. I would love to see it. I mean, especially having gone through the script. There's a lot of things that 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 are going on here. They cut out a whole bunch of different subplots and things like that. There's there's something that you might notice once you know about it is that throughout that one of the subplots in in the script is that Neil and his wife are in a very big fight. She seems to think that he's cheating on her and that this whole story about this guy, Dell, is a complete fabrication. And, you know, he just doesn't want to come back home and she's going to get ready to leave him. OK, and I'm glad that's not there. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad, too. But they cut it out really well because you can notice that she's a little annoyed here and there, but you don't notice that they're in this this really big fight. Well, let me, let me put it this way. I'm glad that's not in this movie. I would be interested to see the movie that it's in yeah. and I would be able to separate them. Right. You know, I'd be able to separate. It's kind of like I've been able to separate the, you know, there are different cuts of movies that I really, you know, there how many versions of Blade Runner exist, you know, and, and now there's yet another cut of Star Trek, the motion picture that has just come out. So I'm able to enjoy the original and enjoy or the close encounters is another one of my all-time favorite movies that has several different versions of it so i i'm able to uh separate the two so i would be i would love to see the three-hour cut of this movie and that would not take away my enjoyment of, of the version that was released so. right okay i agree with you on that i i definitely would love to see it also you know so uh, minute 77 begins with neil finally finding the door latch and ends yeah. with with a state trooper taking off into pursuit. Okay, so yesterday we were talking about the fact that, you know, they were they were trying to get their car out of the, the where it was stuck in the mud, stuck in the, the snow, and Dell floors it and basically crashes into the El Rancho Motel, breaking the, the window and entering one of the motel rooms. And then he quickly puts it in forward and starts driving out and is able to get out over the snowbank and Neil joins him. He gets in the car finally and the 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 two of them just just get out of there as you know as quickly as possible. Which which Yeah, is... I want to just there, there's there's a really kind of <clears throat> it's kind of a subtle funny thing is that he yells go. You know, Steve Martin comes in, he yells go almost like it's an action film. Everyone's yeah. playing it for real. We talked about this in the previous episode. But, of course, as he's going, go, and the wheels are going, and it moves so slowly out of the snow. It's like, go, and it's, it's still like, rrr, rrr, rrr. this motel looked like so many of the motels that I stayed at. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just realized that <laughs> there's, like, 
Sometimes it would be like a Red Roof Inn or a Motel 6, but a lot of times it would be a place that looked like this. And that, you know, the, those, you know, the walking along the side where the, the, the door is facing out, outside and you're parked outside. And yeah, this, this place would have been a place that I would have. Anyway, but yeah, this motel, if you want to know where Sully was staying in the late, eight, late 90s, early 2000s, that was my, that's where I'd be by myself. Watching ESPN. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so they're driving off from the motel yeah. where I'm surprised you didn't see my car. Uh, and but I, I know you're, isn't your car, isn't your car right, right behind that Jeep? Yeah, you know, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, you can't see it because um, it's, it's And obscured. I love just the earnestness when, um, when they're driving off. And of course the blinker isn't working. So John can't. Well, no, first of all, first him. of all, that's not true. If you look when he's, when he's pulling out of the parking lot, his left blinker yeah. is actually on. You know. Well, then, then he's then that it was it. What is this? It uh, uh, he second around twenty something. He sticks his arm out. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna get there. Yeah, but that's okay. If you look at that second fifteen, you can see that the 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 left blinker is on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right before right before, right right before he's about to make the the right. You know. Right. Which which is is great, you know, and then and then as you mentioned, he you see him, you know, when when the the car is now on, I guess it's it's the uh, entrance ramp or whatever to the highway. So he sticks out his hand, you know, in order to signal that that he's actually making a left, which again is very funny because you actually we already know that the left turn signal does does work. Now, what do you know about um, hand signals from driving? Do you know the the hand signals? Uh, I know I know that you t- t- taking a left, you stick your arm out completely straight. If you're taking a right, you have it at a ninety degree angle. That's uh, yeah, that's because we did that for bicycles. You turn left signal, right signal. If you're going to stop, you just uh, you raise your middle finger. <laughs> Maybe in Boston, <laughs> but uh... yeah, you just you just hit the brakes. Right, so. I mean, you do have hand signals for, for, for driving. Now, mostly it's used by uh, cyclists, you know, people who are on yeah. bikes, you know, they're, they're, they're going to use them. But uh, in, in the U.S., it's actually if your car doesn't have working signals, then you're required to actually use hand signals also. Okay, or if, you're, yeah, strikes- or if your signal lights are, are damaged or something like that. So as, as you this- said – it just strikes me as something that John Candy's character would know. Yes, you know that that's he, true. He he knows everything. Know. He would he would yeah. thrive with with the information on the internet. You know, yeah. Dell Dell. If if this movie was made today, Dell would be on his cell phone the entire time, just looking up new facts about things. You know, yeah, to, but you for know, conversation things, in order to have the conversation. That's one, th- one of the things I think is sad about cell phones and everything like that because. The Dells of the world, or like Cliff Clavin from Cheers, yeah. that uh, that that was a very specific type of person you would know, which is the know-it-all. But the the need for a know-it-all is dramatically lowered when any idle thought. It's like my friend, the great the great writer for Conan O'Brien, uh, Dan Cronin, used to talk about. There are no idle thoughts anymore because of the internet. No matter what you think. You know, you could go immediately Google it. You can't never, there's never a thought. I just had a thought and I forgot about it. Like, no, you have to look it up. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I, I've been a know it all about certain topics of my life. 
obviously baseball and you know certain movies and certain presidential facts but that skill is almost worthless now thanks to google and someone like dell i think part of his charm is someone he's you know or whatever however you find his charm uh would be reduced if we can look stuff up all the time and so you know and actually when we get further into this minute i'll, I'll talk a little bit how the, the there's another element of how the internet has um has i don't want to say ruined but has certainly ended a certain aspect of life but i don't want to right okay all right we'll get there so so like you said you know if you want to make a left-hand turn so you put your arm straight out if you want to make a right turn you will basically i i actually (laughs) it's very funny in the research that i did it says that it's still expected that if you're going to make a right turn that you're going to use your right arm if you're on a, a a bike you know, to let people know that that's the direction you're going. But obviously in a car, it's a little more difficult to do that unless uh, you're yeah. in a very uh, cramped car or something like that. So so what you would do is you would have your arm at a 90 degree angle with your with with your hand up. OK, that that's basically the right. way that, that that you mentioned that you're trying to make a, a right. Now, there are countries which actually have hand signals for slowing down. Okay. Oh, I did not know that. So there's in, – in both South Africa and Denmark, if you're going to signal, instead of signaling that that you're stopping, you also will have to signal that you're slowing down. Okay, so therefore you will extend your, your right arm – well, actually in those countries because you're driving on the other side of the road. So you will extend your, right, your arm horizontally with the palm facing down, and then you move your arm upwards and downwards – you know, in like a braking motion, you know, like you're oh, waving wow. your arm up and down in order to tell people that you're starting to slow down. Okay. There are even countries that, that when you want to pass somebody, you have a signal that you need to use. Okay. Where you would extend your arm out and you have the palm facing forwards and then you'd move the arm forward and backwards as opposed to up and down. You know, saying that you're trying to pass. It's just, it's funny thinking about it, that people would actually, you know, do this. And then you have the idea of stopping. So as you mentioned in, in Boston, or at least in the Sullivan household, you know, you you, you give them the, the finger. But in yeah, real life, works. in real life, what people do when they're trying to stop, when you, want to ex- when you want to signal that you're about to stop, is that you will put your arm out horizontally, and then you'd angle your forearm down. You know, so similar to what we said before about that you'd be waving it back and forth, you know, in order to 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 mention that, that you're trying to overtake. But here, you know, the arm is just facing downwards at the time. You know, it's like right. it's a 90 degree facing down. So I know you're a baseball guy and stuff like that. So, I am. So where in, in baseball, one of the big things is the whole thing with signals and signals. Okay, you have the yeah. hand signals, you know, from the third base coach. Exactly. No one can see what you're doing. I can. You just, uh, you know, you just crossed yourself. Um. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's the, uh, suddenly I became a good Catholic boy. There you go. As a, it, it as a Jew, podcast, I don't know that, it, but that's fine. It took this know. podcast to turn me into a good Catholic boy again. There you go. Why not? It, it, it took you to, to sit down and, and talk with, with, with a religious Jew for, for a few hours and yeah, therefore just, exactly. you know, converted yeah. you to, to becoming more religious. Yeah, I, I, I've ceased being <laughs> a, a lapsed Catholic atheist to now I'm uh, – now I'm uh, I could be a practicing Jew. I played Tavia in Fiddler on the Roof, so I guess that's step one. That, that is true. Uh, I was the I was, I was the greatest uh, 
Irish, Italian, lapsed Catholic Tevia of all time. <laughs> all right. So we, we were talking about baseball, but let's go back to, to planes, trains, and automobiles, sort of. Okay. Where mm-hmm. I started talking about baseball signals, right? So right. do you know where the idea of signals in baseball originated? Oh, man. This is where I should. This is when I want to have author John Thorne on. He knows all the origins of stuff. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say no. I bet if you say whatever you're about to tell me, I will have heard of it. But uh, I, I can't sit here right now and tell you the the exact origins of or where it came from. I know they've been around forever, and I know it's been a way to uh, communicate. I know that there is the origin of putting when, like, during a uh, a mound visit, you see the pitcher and the catcher put the mask over their mouths. Because in the playoffs in 1989 between San Francisco and Chicago, uh, some of the Giants were lip reading the what the Cubs were saying on the mound and torched the pitcher. And after that, said, "Oh, they could read their lips." And so ever since then, you see the, yeah. the them covering their mouths because uh, baseball players will are cheats and sneaks, and they want to do all sorts of things. Yeah, that that we've uh, seen over the years. I mean, there's so many different things about. You know, stealing signals and all that stuff. So, but but the signals actually started because they're they originally were were deaf players. Oh wow! Okay, so there there were I mean not there there were deaf professional players, but it started with mm-hmm. the non professional deaf players that they needed a way to to actually start understanding what what's going on. So it was they what they ended up doing was is they had the umpire start to signal whether it was a strike or a ball so that the player could, could, could understand that the part of the problem was then is it would take away from, from the time that the the batter had because he'd be looking and he'd see that, you know, the umpire marks the strike and then he needs time to, to look at, look back at the the pitcher before the pitcher is going to throw the next pitch. And many pitchers took advantage of this and would throw their next, next pitch a lot quicker so that the the player wouldn't be ready for it. Okay. So at that point, it was decided that the third base coach would signal to the batter what was going on. And, and from there it all evolved. You know, they, they then started thinking about, you know, pitchers and catchers using, using their signals. And then there was a whole idea that, okay, we'll have the third base coach actually give signals to the, to the batter to tell him what he's supposed to do. Okay. I'm assuming, you know, how that, how that works, but I'll explain for for other people how that's not, you know, the whole idea of of having some sort of key or an indicator in the signals, because most of the signals are, are pretty much the same. You know, you have, uh, you know, sometimes they're touching their face with their right or left hand or something like that. Sometimes uh, right hand to, to cap, sometimes hand to the ear, to, to the, to the other arm, uh, hand across your chest, you know, things like that. And sometimes you do like a swing away motion, that type of thing. So the the idea was, is that, the you know, they would know that if I was to touch near my eye, so whatever signal I give right after that, that's the one you're supposed to do. You know, that type of thing. Do you what I would have, do you what I would have thought it's interesting that you say it was about for the, the hard of hearing players or the deaf players. I would have guessed that it had to do with the fact that there were a lot of, um, uh, immigrants and people from different countries joining the baseball leagues 
And I would have thought that it would have been ways to have it be a universal sort of language-free way to get the strategy across, as opposed to learning the language that they could learn that this means to do that, as opposed to... But no, it's interesting. Well, Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, that's the information uh, I found. But but as we know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, you can find just about anything on the internet. You can find anything on the internet, but you don't know... Exactly. You don't. You don't. You... So no, but no, but that sounds about right. You know, one thing I do know that that one of the there were competing versions of baseball. There was the New England version and the New York version mm-hmm. uh, that were going around. And the one of the things that really spread this game that was played in the Northeast around the country was the Civil War. Right. And that was with the different regions with their their you know fighting the war and then there were prisoner of war camps and the Southerners learned that. And so after the civil war, baseball became uh, really spread. And it was the New York version of the game that spread because the surprise, the new England version was more complicated and needlessly complicated. And the New York version was more streamlined. And all you have to do is visit Boston and then visit New York and see, Okay, Boston streets make absolutely no sense. It looks like a plate of linguine had been dropped, and that's where the streets are going. And New York is a grid, and everything makes sense, and you can't possibly get lost. And so naturally, well, if you, if you know how to count, came up with a ver- you need to know how to count. In yes, New York. you know how to count. Yes. Well, and in baseball, if you know how to count first to second to third to home, uh, but apparently Boston is like you have to go to first, and then you have to meet your aunt, and then you have to get some chowder, and then you have to go eat a lobster. I mean, there's all sorts of craziness in the Boston version of the game. Yeah. Uh, the New England version of the game, and so, uh, but yeah. Right. Do you, do you yeah, know? Origins. Do you know of any uh, deaf players? Um, hard of well, hearing there players. There was Curtis Pride. There you go. That was the one Curtis I was. Pride played for the uh, Montreal Expos, and I think the Tigers. Right in nineteen ninety three. Late eighty in the nineties, and uh, yes, he he was uh, he was a deaf player. Played in my lifetime. There was a player named Dummy Hoy back yeah. when they were really really. Uh, Sensitive with the nicknames they gave players. <laughs> yeah, you know anyone with anyone with Native American blood in them was automatically chief. Uh, in in uh, which I guess in a way isn't so bad. They're calling him a chief. Uh, they could call him something worse. That's true. But uh, That's uh true. but yeah, but I do know. I remember Curtis Pride. Yeah. So Curtis Pride. What what was very interesting, and this is also your your Boston connection here and stuff. So mm-hmm. so. Uh, he actually signed with the Tigers in 96, yes. as you said. Mm-hmm. And the third base coach, Terry Francona. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the first first base coach, uh, Ron Oyster. Ron Oyster. Uh, Ron Oyster, who was a uh, member of the Cincinnati Reds for a billion years and played on the team that won the World Series in 1990. And no, I'm not looking any of this up. No, of course not. And, uh, <laughs> well, that that's... That's the idea of, of Google having calls this useless me. Google calls me. That's what they do. <laughs> exactly. So the the two of them learned uh, sign language in order to communicate better with with Curtis Pride, which I, I found was was really interesting that they would do that. And then obviously you have the whole idea of of teams stealing signals mm-hmm. between the pitcher mm-hmm. and catcher. You know, and I mean this is very relevant right now. They they yeah. just announced. Not long ago, you've probably talked about this on your podcast, you know, the fact that they're actually able to – they've approved having um, electronic signaling mm-hmm. between the, the pitcher pitcher and catcher. Right. You know, where the, where the catcher will have a, a an electronic mm-hmm. device where he has nine different choices 
of telling the pitcher what what pitch he wants him to throw. I have no problem if uh, catchers and pitchers want to use little Dick Tracy watches to to signal pitches to each other. I we we narrowly avoided a lockout that would have ended the season before it began. So little details of minutia like that aren't going to bother me. So basically, you know, they're they're on the highway, and you know, the, you see the car. I'm I'm still surprised this car works. You know, with the yeah, I know. I know. You know, and the fact that it it's it's going on a highway, it's not just clunking along and stuff like that. You see that like they they give us a great shot where you see the wheels are wobbling. Oh yeah. Oh, that, there's a wonderful shot where it comes on head on. Yes. Yeah, it comes head on and it moves a little bit to the side, and you see the panel is there. Stuff is dragging along. Stuff is flapping. Yeah. You see that they're driving past the station wagon with a couple is looking at them like, what the hell is going on there? Yeah. And um, and and they start singing the song. The, they start yeah, singing. And this is. Are, are, were you familiar the with the song before? Uh, I don't know the song. Okay, this so the song's the song. called the the Blue Moon of Kentucky. It was okay. uh, originally written by uh, bluegrass mu- musician Bill Monroe back in the 1940s, and there have been versions of this song by uh, Elvis, Paul McCartney. I mean, I have a whole long list of people that did it. There's there, there's even a jam session where where the Beatles just just sang the song, and there's apparently some recording of it. It was never uh, released. You know, you have Jerry Reed who did did a version of it, John Fogarty did a version of it, you know, so it, uh, Patsy Klein. Yeah. She did one also. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably heard this song before without knowing what it was. Um, when you and I were talking about how the internet has basically destroyed the need for a know-it-all, I'll tell you another thing that the internet has partially taken away is moments like this, the boredom on the road. And how do you fill that boredom? You fill it with singing songs. You fill it with little, you know, games you play as you're driving. Like two guys sitting, singing this song. That's not going to happen today because they'd have their earbuds in and they'd be listening to their true crime podcast or whatever right. as they're driving Tell along. Tell baseball. Like, <laughs> you know, they, or, or Locked On MLB, <laughs> which is part of the Locked On Podcast Network where it is your team every day. <laughs> yes. This is something that... that an art of the long drive that I think is missing. And it's, I think, I, I think it's something that's missing in childhood is boredom. I think boredom is important because boredom needs to be filled with right. something. You know, boredom needs to be filled with curiosity. Boredom needs to be filled with song. Boredom needs to be filled with daydreaming. And I think if we constantly have things and devices to take boredom away from us, we lose moments like this. This is I like this scene. There's no jokes yeah. in this scene. You know, they're just two guys singing a song in a car that's falling apart, and everyone else is looking at it, what the hell is up with these two? And they're just so used to it that they're just singing a song like two guys on a car trip. And uh, this is character yeah. comedy, like we talked about the other day. One of the reasons why this film works is it's not gag-driven, it's not punchline-driven, but it's character-driven. And this is a character moment that, all right, we're back on the road. This car is a disaster, but let's treat it yeah. like it's a road trip. And and I this is as brief as this is. This is one of the reasons yeah. why this film works so well. And yeah. why so I, I mean, I also love the way that, that Neil is dressed here. Because once again, Neil Neil doesn't have oh, any yeah. bags anymore. His stuff was, yeah. was completely destroyed. 
you know, Del Del's uh, steamer trunk, you know, made it through, so he's got stuff. And so he's wearing this like red and black, what looks like a hunting cap or something that just does not yes. fit with his character at all. He's he's at he's all. completely, you know, given up. I guess you can say. He's like, I'm cold. I'm gonna put this hat on. You know, and this is the only time we see him in this. Well, hat. let's think about what this also is here. Compare this to the scene earlier in the film on the bus where they're singing the Flintstone theme. Right. And three coins Neil is not and and Neil is not participating, or Neil is reluctant. Right. And at this point, he's almost like he's embraced it. He's embraced the insanity, he's embraced his spot with it, he's embraced his role with Dell. Like, I'm this is it. I'm in the car, it's burnt up. I'm not, I am now, I'm dressed like this now, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a transformation. Again, I'm a broken record. It's character comedy, yeah, not just gag comedy, mm-hmm. and seeing that the two of them are now, this is a connection. When you see two people singing together, that is a visual and, and, and character connection between these two. That they're on the same page right now. That you wouldn't have expected earlier in the movie because of that all the conflicts between them. The you know, right? Yeah. That would not have been possible earlier in the movie. Yeah, right. and it, it's what makes this film work on so many levels. And yeah. and you know, there, and it's not him saying, "You know what, Dell? I now understand where you're coming from, and I am now appreciating you as a person." No, they're showing us; they're not telling us. Right. And I think that it, the fact that. The fact that Steve, I'm going to just refer to him by the actor's name, the Marvel one. The fact that Steve Martin's reaction to smashing into the the motel in the previous scene was not, oh my God, what are we going to do? It was, I'm now, I'll be complicit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you and I are in this together. That's right. So that's that. This is this is just this is part of the wonderful. Uh, writing and direction and uh and the and using these two brilliant performers um perfectly yeah no question about it and then the the shot continues and we we get to see a police car and then we get to see a shot from within the police car you know where mm-hmm. where you know we see from the the viewpoint of of the policeman inside and then we we see the car speed by and then we see a radar gun which Obviously, also there's a baseball connection there, but we're, we'll we'll not go into that. We've talked enough. No, we've got today. enough. We got to do enough. <laughs> and, I mean, even I think we even I think we've talked too much baseball. <laughs> and uh, there's never too much to talk about baseball, but whatever. I know, I but whatever, know. whatever. What that, that's what not on a movie podcast, has it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it mentions that we see the the number seventy eight come up, you know, which uh, means that they're they they must be driving at seventy eight miles per hour. And then immediately we hear the siren uh, get lit up and uh, the police car begins to take chase. And we see on the, the back of the, the, the car, it says state trooper. And uh, he it, it's funny how it speeds off in a very funny manner because it, it looks like it's both fast and slow motion at the same time. They, you know, the, yeah. the way that they edited it just just works really well. I mean, because like he, you know, he, he spins out of the the niche that he's that he's sitting in that his car is parked in you know and and does it in a very strange manner as he's chasing after the car and that's actually how this minute ends you know so yeah and 
And then whoever gets the next minute gets to find out who the trooper is played by. That's right. And gets, gets to find out a lot more information also about about yeah. this. Yeah. You know. All right. So in the, the original script, there, there are some discrepancies here. First of all, there's a conversation between Neil and Dell, which appears in the original trailer, but it doesn't appear in the movie at all, where they have a uh, little conversation about Hawaii. Dell basically says, you ever been to Hawaii? Neil says, once. It was nice. He goes, yeah. And then Dell says, Marie and I, we're going to go there for our honeymoon. We we're all set, but I got the call from American Lightning Fixture for my job. I not only blame them for all my career misery, I blame them for depriving me and Marie of a honeymoon. So then Neil goes, well, you can always go. It's still there. And then Dell quickly changes the subject and goes, how are you doing for time? He says, I don't know. I gave up my watch. I feel bad about that. Why don't you take mine? No, it's okay. No, really, take it. I'd feel much better. I don't want your watch, Dell. Not good enough for you? No, not at all. I just wouldn't feel right taking your watch. So at this point, Dell starts steering the car with his knees and starts trying to take his, his watch off. He goes, take it or I'll throw it out on the highway. Neil says, just watch the road. And then Dell goes, you're taking the goddamn watch if I have to shove it down your throat. And again, he's still having trouble taking it off. And Neil screams at him again, watch the road. He goes, no problem. After last night, it's all eyes and ears. Give me a hand with this damn thing. Neil says, I don't want the watch. You're making me feel like crap. You're taking the watch. Here. He holds out his wrist and wants uh, Neil to take take off the, the watch. And he goes, there's a funny little class thing underneath. It's a bitch to get off. Then Neil goes, my fingers are so numb. Here, right here. So as he's doing it, he takes the, the hand, his hands off the wheel, and then the car begins to swerve. And as the car swerves, that's when they pass the police car. Okay, the car, the, the cop sees this, this car, uh, you know, fly by, and he sees on his radar gun that this car is going over 90. That's what it says. You know, it doesn't, it, it says 78, they were, they were being a little conservative, you know, in the movie, right? right. They changed it down there. And, and then it, it says that the police car begins to, to gain on them. So whatever, I, it's a, it, it adds more information that, that we find out later. But it doesn't right. add anything to, to, to the movie itself, to the story itself. You know, it, it's giving us the, the the entire original script has a whole bunch of breadcrumbs along the way about what really is going on with Dell. Right. And right. it's nice to hear and it's nice to read. But I think they did it perfectly in the final cut. Yeah. And I think um, um, I have no problem with that scene that you just read. Uh, I think the. Steering with his knees. I think we already had that scene when he's trying yeah. to take the jacket off. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of hitting the same joke button. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's so funny with the uh, the scene where he's trying to take the coat off that I think hitting it again for the watch. Uh, I don't think I think they picked the right version of it. Uh, I do like that's a nice story because and the way that it was relayed is more of Neil trying to relate. Like, you could still have a honeymoon, like trying to say something nice to Dell as opposed to um, anything being abrasive or dismissive. But I love the trailer breadcrumbs they have in the movie as it is. Again, I like the movie as it is. If that scene was in it, 
again, the one thing I have, the one objective I have is hitting the same comedy button that they already yeah. hit. But the the yeah. Hawaii exchange, you know, it would have actually. Do you what would I mean? Not that I'm gonna, you know, edit this movie for them. But if they had that scene and it ended at, you know, what time it is? I don't know. I sold my watch. Boom. You know, because that was kind of a funny. That would be kind of a funny button there. Yeah. Because you know he sold off everything else. Like no, that'd be like a reminder, and therefore you don't have to have the scene where he's trying to give him the watch. Right. Um. But uh, I like the scene as it is. Um. Yes, yeah, so but, do I. You know, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. Right. So normally on uh, today's Tuesday, but normally on Wednesdays we have a, a segment called Hughes Hunt Day. But since mm-hmm. uh, Sully isn't able to be with us uh, for the rest of the week, so you know we're we're, we're going to get his top five John Hughes movies today. All right. I have. I'm going to say something here. Uh, my top John can't. My top John Hughes film is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Heads and Shoulders, that's my favorite John Hughes film. I don't know if I have a second one. Wow. I'm not a John Hughes fan. I love this movie. I was 12, 13, 14 years old when this all the teen films came out. Sixteen Candles, Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink. I didn't like any of them. I didn't like any of them. I thought the Breakfast Club were a bunch of jerks. I thought I thought I'd never Thought, I thought Ferris Bueller was a an entitled brat. Uh, I actually have never seen Sixteen Candles, and I have no desire to see Sixteen Candles. Uh, and uh, I felt that uh, the you know, Pretty in Pink, she picked the wrong guy. I did. It, I I fervently believe that people my age kind of fell into three different camps. You got really into Spielberg. You got really into Stephen King or you got really into John Hughes. And they were all films about suburbia and and American life in suburbia. And a Spielberg film, there's boring suburbia and something's introduced to it, like a shark or a flying saucer or an alien or whatever. Stephen King is it's boring suburbia and something really scary is introduced to it that's scary but familiar. It's a, now something yeah. very familiar is scary. John Hughes, it's boring suburbia. <laughs> All right. <laughs> pass the, pass and, the beer now. And, no. I, and I, <laughs> to me, it was like, 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 to me, John Hughes film was like, I loved E.T. until that damn alien showed up. I wanted to be more about uh, are they going to go out to Halloween and what's happening with Elliot's dad in Mexico with Sally. I, I, it, I never, like, I remember seeing the breakfast club and I was the exact age that that film was designed for. And I remember thinking, why am I going to a movie theater to see kids? I hate. Well, I, can I watch gremlins? I want to watch ghostbusters. I want to watch something. I want to escape from these people. Um, wow. And so I never got into John Hughes films. Um, and I never, like I thought Uncle Buck was okay. Maybe Uncle Buck's my second favorite. Um, and I was too old for Home Alone. Um, maybe Vacation, well, I'll say Vacation is number three. Uh, but like, he didn't direct that. Yeah, but that, that never, still he wrote it. Okay, so. okay fine. Uh, but I never, I never was a John Hughes fan. Um, and uh, so, and I, and again, you could not be born at a more like a Venn diagram of who a John Hughes fan should be. And you would see me right in the middle of that. 
and his films meant nothing to me. Wow. Nothing. Breakfast Club saw it. All right, that happened. Didn't you love it? I, you know, ask me what happened. I don't even remember. Ferris Bueller. I wanted to walk out. This, I said, this is boring. He's boring. He's he's a you know. I I was rooting for the principal. You know. <laughs> and uh, Pretty in Pink. I couldn't care less. I just didn't care. And and so whenever he said, doesn't he speak to you? No. Yeah, he spoke to me. He said, go see the Spielberg film. You know, go go see Poltergeist. You know, you know. So I I I know. And I and with that being said, I love this movie. I love planes, trains, and automobiles. Because it's and it's so, it's hitting at a different audience. That's the whole thing here. I, I'm it's, a big comedy fan, and he, yeah. You know, then again, I love a Christmas story. And if you look at the other films that Bob Clark directed. It's a train wreck. Yeah. You know, Porky's, Rhinestone. Uh, you know, th- there was another film he did with Dan Aykroyd and Gene Hackman, which I saw, which was unwatchable. Yeah, but in the was middle it of the movie. Loose Cannons? Loose Cannons, thank you. Oh, but, that's terrible. Uh, yeah. Terrible movie. But in the middle of it, he has a Christmas story. But but you that know? one's more, so, I mean, it's, it's being told from a more personal perspective. So it is. Right. And it's also based on the great writings of yeah. Gene Shepard. Um, and maybe what makes this one work for me is he took two of my favorite uh, comedic performers and used them perfectly. Right. Okay. That's and fair. so, I, and again, I I, I want to make one thing very clear. I, I do not think he's a bad director by any stretch of the imagination, much like Paul Thomas Anderson. I do not think Paul Thomas Anderson is a bad director. I just don't particularly care for. No, he movie. just doesn't speak to you with with, I, with what he's trying to do. Yeah, and John, I have the same thing with uh, Wes Anderson. Hughes. I, I, you know, I, okay. I cannot stand there his movies. I just don't. I don't get that. Yeah. That's and, what it comes down. And there's about three or four Wes Anderson films that I absolutely love, but I get it. I get why someone would be would roll their eyes. I love Bottle Rocket. I love Rushmore. I love the uh, um, the Budapest Hotel. I loved uh, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, and I liked Royal Tenenbaums, but I get why right. people don't. I get why people don't, and uh, and and for the John Hughes films, it's again, I may have been annoyed that I was told over and over again these speak to your generation, and I said no, they don't. Well, they do. They speak to they speak uh, to our and, generation, but they apparently don't speak to Sully. That that's what it comes down to. That's yeah. fine. Not that you're the only person and, and that doesn't there, speak and there are to. Other films, yeah. Yeah, and like there are other films like you know a film like Fast Times from at Richmond High, which I thought was yeah. brilliant. You know, The Sure Thing I thought was brilliant. You know, there are other films that Better Off Dead I loved. I mean, there are other films at that time that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I remember liking I don't know if it held up. But I liked the film Lucas. Oh, of with course, Corey I love that movie. And uh, yeah, it's a, that's a wonderful film. Stand by Me came out around that same time. That's yeah. a masterpiece. You know, so it's it wasn't all just me wanting to see Ghostbusters and Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan and Tron. You know, I mean, although though those were what I loved going to the movies, like it was the greatest era of escape yeah, filmmaking. Sure. Growing uh, growing up and, in the eighties was and was just, great when it comes to movies. I, you know, yeah, I'm very nostalgic yeah, so, for my eighties you know, movies, which is again one of the reasons why I'm doing this oh, movie. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, you know, this film uh, is a. Master, I mean, they 
so many films wasted the talent of Steve Martin. So many films wasted the talent of John Candy. And this film used both perfectly. Um, And I think it's, and and it holds up wonderfully. I just, the rest of the rest of John Hughes's films, I just shrug. Again, that's completely fair and legitimate. And that's, and that's why there's, there's always what to talk about when talking about movies. I love the fact that, that not everyone agrees on everything because if everyone agreed, it would be boring. It would be a boring conversation. Yeah, it's nice having the dialogue and, and, debate, you know, about it. Well, it's not even a debate. It's just like I understand people I know that these films went the world to. And I don't think they're wrong, but uh, this film I adore. I absolutely – and I've always adored this movie. I saw it in the theaters, um, and I loved it then. I've watched it several times. Uh, and I said we watched it not this Thanksgiving but the pre- during COVID with my family. And, God, it still holds up. It's yeah, wonderful. Completely. All right, so again, we have a segment every Friday, but since you won't be here with us this Friday, where we do uh, Weekend Candy, where we do top five John Candy mm-hmm. movies. So why don't you you give us your, your rundown of your top five John Candy movies so that at the end of doing this whole podcast, I'll be able to you know tally up what all of my guests think about the movies of John Candy. Um, I, I, I find, as I, as I kind of alluded to before, I find it very frustrating that uh, John Candy, who is such a brilliant performer, was so seldom used yes. well. Okay. Or, or let me put this let me put it this way: he was in a lot of films that were not worthy of his okay. talents. Is I think probably the best way for me to put it. Um, that being said, um, you know I I think that. Uh, you know, there's some films that he was in. Like, I think this is this is probably his greatest film, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, I know I'm supposed to go five to one, but I'll just say I think this is the best use of him because you see his humanity, you see his humor, you see his pathos, all these different things that are in this film and work perfectly. Um, I mentioned I'm not a fan of John Hughes. I think John Candy is great in Uncle Buck. Um. I don't really like that movie, but I think he's wonderful in it. Um, and I, you know, a film like Brewster's Millions, which is not a good movie, but John Candy's great in it, and I think that's almost a testament to him that he's great in so many films that are not very good movies, but he stands out as very good in them. Um, I know this is not a film that he starred in, but I love him in The Blues Brothers. Uh, you know, orange whip, orange whip. I mean, they had, you know, what did he say? When he reaches over, he said, "Like, hey, can I have the, can I have the microphone? Thanks a lot. Hi, uh, we're car number. What car are we? Five, five, fifty-five, and we're in a truck. I mean, it, it, every line. He's only in like three scenes in the yeah, entire right movie, there. and every scene, he just, it's just perfection. Um, stripes." is again the first two thirds of stripes is absolutely brilliant the it's final just third horrendous. Where in like it ruins it horrendous. ruins the, whole, the rest of it if it ended with the razzle dazzle scene then that would be like the apartment that would be like dr strange love it'd be talked about as one of the great comedies yeah. of all time and instead they had this action they had a sequel basically that they tacked on that was completely nonsensical um, but that being said, John Candy is so funny 
in Stripes. I'm going to throw another movie out there. Again, he's not the star of it. He's only in like two or three scenes in this film. He's amazing in his two or three scenes. And it gave us a little window of what we missed. Because when he died, when did he die? Was it 95? 94. 94. Yeah, I was just out of college when he died. Um, and the window of what we could have had was JFK. Oh, I knew you were going there. I knew you were going there. He is, he has a small but incredibly important part yes. in JFK. In fact, in the trailer of JFK, it starts with John Candy and his scene. If, if I tell you the name of the enchilada, if I, if I tell you that information you want to hear, that is Born Voyage Dino. I mean, dead. I mean, a bullet in my head. Can you dig? And <laughs> it's, it's a, I happen to be a very, very big fan of the movie JFK. Yeah. I too. know it's, it, I, there, there are holes in logic the size of Dealey Plaza in the film, but I watch it as a mystery film and as an incredibly well made detective film. I do not watch it as a, as a documentary. I don't watch it as this is the truth of what happened. I watch it as a really extraordinarily well-made mystery movie. And John Candy yeah. has a really critical part in the film. And he is so good. He is so yes. good in a basically a humor-free scene. The one humor is Completely. He, he has the he talks about the one lady he that passes by. And um, and then, you know, he speaks with this sort of daddy-o kind of hip lingo, uh, which is kind of funny to hear. But he doesn't have any jokes. Yeah. And in fact, he no, gets really no upset joke. and stands up and try and stares down Costner. Um, and he's incredible in that scene. And you yeah. see and Oliver Stone talked about that, that John Kennedy was very nervous because he's in, he's in a movie that, you know, Joe Pesci is in it. Costner's in it. Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, Donald Sutherland, you know, all these incredibly, you know, Gary Oldman, all these sissy space, like all these incredibly gifted. Walt, Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau, yeah. Jack Lemmon, Ed Asner's. <laughs> Jack Lemmon. You know, unbelievable. <laughs> you know, all these people are these, these truly, you know, intense, dramatic characters in the film. Um, and that he, he has to play one of the linchpins in the, yeah. the story. Um, and he was very nervous. And of course, it worked because his character is sweating during the scene. It actually worked yeah. out for the better. Um, but you know, he could have become an interesting dramatic actor. Yeah, I think he would have been. Uh, JFK was a side of John Candy that we never got to see, and it's a shame. I mean, we got a glimpse of it, and we never got to see more of it. Definitely makes sense. Thank you very much for that. So every day we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track where either myself or my guest will give a little story about an adventure, a misadventure that uh, one of us had along the journey of life. So, Sully, you got you got a story for us? And the only other time I had a moment like that was with someone who – I'm actually not going to say this person's name because, um, you know, she, she's gone on to become actually a pretty successful stand-up um, at the time – she was at the time we were involved and she was more successful than me as a stand-up at the time and remained and apparently still, still now too. <laughs> uh, and, and she's a wonderful comic, but I don't necessarily want to drag her into this, but um, we did it. We, I was driving her to a show that I was going to do a, a, like I said, I, I got a spot in the show because I was able to bring her. She was the headliner and it was someplace in New Jersey 
and we're coming off the Jersey Turnpike, and we turn a left and a left and a left. It's again, it's a dark street, and we turn the corner, and there, in the middle of the street, at about the side, about you know, uh, two or three feet wide, couple feet high, in the middle of the street was a fish tank with, with, <laughs> with water in it and a fish in the tank. And we stopped. Whoa. And we like, like, this is something out of, this is something out of Terminator, like something, some, some rip in the time space. Like we're like, we stopped and we clearly see if I didn't, you know, I would, you know, like what's going on. And we're staring at it going like, there's a fish tank in the middle of the road. Should we move it? I'm not Whoa. getting out of the car to move it. You get out of the car. I'm not getting out of the car. To move it. We, you know, we drove around it, but like this, like we just the rest of the way from all the way the, the the club was somewhere near Princeton where we we're doing it. But like we the the whole time and the whole drive back from Princeton to uh to New York, we we're like, what scenario of events led to a fish tank? being placed in the middle of the street. Seriously? And, uh, to this day, I cannot think of a scenario that led to that. So, Why don't you tell people once again how they can get in touch with you? Uh, subscribe to my podcast, Locked On MLB. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, um, my old podcast of my Movie Minute podcast was called uh, Bull Durham Minute, where I talk about Bull Durham. Uh, one of these days, uh, I, I have all the materials. One of these days, I am going to do the Graduate Minute. Um, I just haven't gotten around to it because I'm also on the verge of earning my second master's degree and I'm also a full-time teacher and a father and I have the podcast and I'm trying to lose weight and I'm writing a book. So, um, one of these days I'll sneak in the time to do the graduate minute, but, uh, not quite yet, but maybe keep an eye out for that. You know, maybe, maybe you're not listening to this in real time. And by then I'll have done the graduate. All right, cool. Very good. So, and finding me is very simple. All you do is just a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, and you can go to our website. So, Sully, thank you very much. This has been a very, very enlightening and enjoyable conversation over the last two days. So I want to thank you for for, for yeah. agreeing to find time to, to fit this into your busy schedule. Oh, this is I had a blast. I had an absolute blast. This was All so right. much fun. And I'll be back with everybody tomorrow. But until then, you're fine. You're fine.